Are you called to ministry? Throughout the month of March, Midwestern Seminary is giving away free resources and content to equip you to pursue your calling for the church. Your calling is too important to pursue unequipped, so we want to gift you with helpful books and articles, scholarships to seminary commentary sets, Logos Bible software, and more. Enter to win these giveaways at mbts.edu slash called. Everyone who enters can receive free ebooks during the entire month of March as well. This is an incredible giveaway. You can win scholarships, you can win helpful books, you can win commentary sets, and you can win a Logos Bible software package. That's incredible. And there are so much more that they're giving away over at mbts.edu slash called. Go check out this giveaway. Everyone who enters can receive free ebooks during the month of March. So there is really no reason to not enter this giveaway right now. mbts.edu slash called. You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up? Good morning. How are we doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? So good. So good. When Jen did sign on to our recording today... Um, it was the worst sign-on we've ever had of somebody onto the studio. It was like I was the camera was falling over, the sound, yeah. there was terrible feedback. I really thought there was an earthquake happening in her part, her part of Texas for a hot second. And I'm not that far away, so I thought, what is happening over there? But we're all good now, Jen? I just wanted to make sure you guys were awake. Well, if we weren't before, we were we were woke after. You know what it I'm was saying? so funny because I couldn't hear it. All I could see was you guys acting like the whole sky was falling and it was kind of great. I was like, wow, I really do have influence over these guys. Yeah. Well, you, for somebody who just wrapped up a a shooting for your forthcoming revelation study, Mm -hmm. it did feel like you were pouring out a bowl of wrath. We needed an apocalyptic moment to start the day. That's right. (laughs) And that was it. That's right. Repent guys, repent Uh, or perish. That's true. It did. It definitely sobered me up before the Lord. Uh, But we're not talking about Revelation. Uh, We're talking about Exodus chapter 30 and 31, really with a focus on the liturgy of Israel and the cult or culture of worship, Um, or sometimes referred to the worshiping cult or the cultus of worship. We think of cult as a uniformly bad thing. That's one of the reasons we don't use that language. But cultic worship is just ritualized worship. Liturgical worship would be another way of saying it. And in this portion of Exodus, we are getting some very specific instructions about what Israel's worship and sacrificial culture is going to be. This is important because, as we've already discussed, there is... After Sinai, God, who has rescued his people, is now reorienting them to how they're going to live their life in his presence. But because of the impact of sin on a broken world, and because God is going to be, uh, for the first time really since Eden, dwelling with his people in a very proximate, near way, there has to be a very rigorous, regulated instruction for Israel's life. This involves their cleanliness. It involves their purification. It involves... uh, what they eat and what they don't eat it involves what they wear, what they don't wear it involves what they do if they see a dead animal and what to do if they accidentally touch it and how they're going to offer prayer and how they're going to offer praise. And so when we get into the back half of Exodus, and some of you are there right now in your Bible reading plans for the year, it's easy to just kind of glaze over 
after the Ten Commandments, wait till the golden calf, and then kind of just ride out the back portion of Exodus that way. <laughs> but this whole season is an argument of trying to tell you not just the back half of Exodus, but uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are really worth your attention because they are telling us something significant, not just about the history of redemption, but about what the people of God's orientation should be to the presence of God in their midst and how that affects our worship. So we're going to dive in looking at worship and sacrifice after Sinai. To do that, I'm going to read Exodus 30 verses 1 through 10, uh, and then we will talk a little bit about what the connection is between the tax here, uh, the uh, anointing of oil, the sacrifices that are being offered, uh, and really what God is inviting his people into. So let me read Exodus 30 beginning in verse 1. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it out of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square and two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. You shall make a molding of gold around it. You shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them and they shall be holders for poles for with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering. You shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So this is dealing with the altar of incense. But if you look at even just the little subsection headings... In the chapters after this, you're going to see reference to the census tax, reference to the basin, reference to anointing oil. You're going to hear reference to two guys with two great names, Aholiab and Bezalel. Baller names, right? I mean, those are, <laughs> we should see those among babies uh, today. Did, did you practice those pronunciations before you got on the podcast today, Kyle? No, but I had Curious. a real, I, I've messed up on a holy ab and Bezalel before. Uh, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I accidentally one time when I was preaching this passage called uh, just like slip of the tongue, a holy ab and Jezebel, very different character uh, <laughs> very different. in the story, <laughs> very different character <laughs> in the story. So, um, but a holy ab and Bezalel, but really what we're seeing here is a Again, the cultic practice, the worship practice, the liturgical practice of Israel. Let's start with a big question that our audience is broadly familiar with. Why are sacrifices at all being offered to God? Why is this God so vain that he needs sacrifices? Does he need the aromas of burnt meat and oils? Why are sacrifices being offered to God? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, sacrifices are parables. They're signs and symbols that are pointing toward the the sacrifice of Christ. And I think people recognize that. I think they know enough to make that connection. But you look in the Old Testament, you're like, well, why are there so many that we had one sacrifice that's made by Christ? So why all of these different ones? And I think it relates to the idea I just said. I think there are many ways in which Israel needed to understand their need um, for deliverance and many ways in which they needed to understand the holiness of God. And so that's why I think it's mm -hmm. good for us to not tune out when we get to this part 
of the book of Exodus? Because rather than say, well, this doesn't matter anymore because this was all fulfilled in Christ, we can ask, but what was it telling us about the sacrifice of Christ? What was it telling us about Mm. the holiness of God? And I will say up front, I don't think that's immediately clear. I think the first time you start dealing with these, I think it's confusing. And maybe the 20th or 30th time you start looking at them, it begins to come more clear for you, especially if you're spending time in the whole story of the Bible. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I might just add briefly. I agree. I agree with you, Jan. I mean, it's about the sinfulness of humanity and the holiness of God. If you if you look at the passage we finished with in our last podcast on Exodus, in chapter twenty nine, it says, "I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I'm the Lord, that I am their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, mm-hmm. their God." This even reminds me a little bit of Calvin's. Uh, and this is kind of what you're highlighting, Jen, <clears throat> two kinds of knowledge, uh, knowledge of God and knowledge of mm-hmm. self, knowledge of God, both as image bearer and as sinner, and also knowledge of the holy creator God who mm-hmm. made us. And if God's going to dwell with humanity, part of what these sacrifices are doing is reminding us of that distinction, a good, holy, righteous, perfect creator God who has also come to redeem and a broken, sinful uh uh, humanity that is in need of consecration and being set apart for this God. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. I also think something we don't talk about very often that is easier to talk about in the New Testament, I think, but I think is also true here. This is also supposed to teach Israel that it isn't actually about these sacrifices. Mm-hmm. These sacrifices are supposed to posture their hearts uh, with lowliness and humility, that this animal is dying instead of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just like us, these we'll see in these stories too, the, the people here begin believing that it's only about the sacrifice, not the posture of their hearts, right. to the point where at points God will say, your your sacrifices, your cultic worship is dead to me. I'm more worried about the posture of your hearts. This is what Jesus is ultimately getting at in the Sermon on the Mount is, I'm looking for a greater righteousness, one that's internal, not just external. I'm not just interested in making sure that you follow the Exodus and Levitical codes and, and worship practices right, but you're supposed to bow your hearts down to me, yeah. that the ultimate form mm-hmm. of worship is is our hearts worshiping who Yahweh is, not just getting these done exactly the way he said. Well, and I think if you if you think about it, had they bowed their hearts to him, then the sacrifices would not have been necessary, right? The sacrifice mm-hmm. is made because that is not done. And one of the things that was so fascinating to me when uh, I got into the latter parts of the story of Revelation just last week in the taping. So I'd always thought, you know, you always hear Psalm 46, sacrifices and offerings I did not desire, but a broken and contrite spirit is what 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 he wanted. And you get to the picture of the new Jerusalem as a holy of holies that fills the earth. And one of the things that's significant about that is that if you look at the holy of holies, there is no altar of sacrifice in the holy of holies. Like mm-hmm. the, 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 the altar of sacrifice that we just read about, the golden altar is outside of the holy of holies. And yep. then the bronze altar is out in the outer court. And when we see the new Jerusalem descend, both of those areas are gone because mm-hmm. there is no longer the need for sacrifice and offering because the heart posture of all who are there will be what it should have been all along. And they will have fully and finally become a kingdom and priests to God serving in the Holy of Holies, essentially in this, in this new Jerusalem. And so I just started thinking back on all this old Testament pattern that's set here and, and, and realizing that um, it goes away in a particular way when Christ's sacrifice accomplishes our final deliverance from the penalty of sin, but it goes away in a whole other way once the, the presence of sin is gone forever. Um, But again, 
we still learn while we're in in our own wandering in the wilderness season, which we're all in right now, waiting to enter into our final rest. We still learn from these patterns that were set from us, ways to relate to God, to relate to his holiness. But the, the thing about that temple scene in Revelation was, I, I started to think, wait a minute, this is actually what the tabernacle and the temple were designed for all along. They weren't designed for sacrifice. They were designed for pure worship. That's right. Um, and in the that's New right. Jerusalem, that's what we have. But in, in this life, um, the impure ways in which we approach God um, are dealt with in, in what we see in Exodus through this pattern of sacrifices and then ultimately in, in Christ. Yeah, and that's, that's right. And I think one of the things that often troubles us or maybe confuses us when we get to these passages about sacrifice and worship and just how demanding it all mm-hmm. seems is that we have a fairly restrictive view of freedom. It's easy for us to look at Israel's rescue from Egypt and say, God was rescuing them from Pharaoh who demanded all of Israel's life. The problem wasn't that somebody made a claim on all of Israel's life. The problem is the one who made it was a false God. Mm -hmm. Hmm. All of Israel's life belongs to Yahweh. He Mm -hmm. is Lord over everything. What we're finding in these instructions about worship and sacrifice and how to clean your hands and what to eat is not that God released them from Egypt so they would be free from submission. It's he released them from Egypt so they'd be free to submit to the Lord. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. This is a difference. So free when to we worship. Read the, yeah. Free to worship. So mm-hmm. when we find these, it is easy for us to view them as restrictions. They are not, though, conceived of as restrictions. They are conceived of as the rules for permission to be near to the presence of God. That's very different. So I know that it is easy for us to read these and be like, wow, it is sacrificial. But properly speaking, if we think sacrifice is rendering unto God that which properly belongs to us, then that is a fictitious (laughs) category. There is nothing Mm -hmm. that properly Mm -hmm. belongs to us. There was nothing that properly belonged to Israel. That's a part of the tragedy that we're going to find out in the golden calf is the very gold they melted down that probably would have been rendered in the census tax unto the worship of Yahweh Mm -hmm. is the gold they'll melt down to create a false God. You are going to give all that you have to someone or something. Yahweh is just pointing you in the right direction to render offering. That's it. It's like Bob Dylan said, you may serve ready for like a giving campaign. (laughs) That was good. It sounds like it. Take my money, Kyle. It sounds like it. It's like Bob Dylan said, uh, you may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. There's not an option. That is just Bob Dylan. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, yes. If not a great theologian, at least a great poet. But uh, yeah, I mean, I do think that when we read these passages, I often find that most people's objection to it is actually the whole point, man. It does seem like God is demanding everything. He's kind of rulesy. Yeah. Yeah, he is demanding everything. Mm-hmm. And that's not just like some true true of some Old Testament conception of God. Mm-hmm. Jesus literally comes into the frame and says, I'm Lord over everything, mm-hmm. top to bottom. So this is a John MacArthur quote that has been really helpful to me that relates to this. He said, and think about, think as I, as I say it, think about they were enslaved in Israel and now they're in the wilderness and God is giving them the rules to show how to way how how to live his way in his world. Um, MacArthur says, your justification will cost you nothing, but your sanctification will cost you everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we see here. And and we think, well, why would God want to take everything from me? And it's like, because 
it's good. It's good for you to learn mm-hmm. to live God's way in God's world. It's not bad. And so, you know, you think about like, I always think about years ago how um, we had a family outing to go play whirly ball, which is bumper cars and basketball combined. And um, it's when we got there, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, whirly ball. Yes, your, your, your patron sport. And so uh, we all jump into these bumper cars and we're like, let's, let's, let's do this. And the first thing that we did was not play whirly ball. It was, we had to sit and listen to the rules of how to play whirly ball so that no one would harm anyone else uh, during, in the process. And if you don't do that, then people are going to potentially get injured or something like that. And so when we think about the way that God gives his good laws to us, whether, you know, you're talking about laws that, re- that require sacrifice, etc., or, or laws that just to govern daily living, um, that's what he's doing. He's not restricting us from living um, however we want. He is showing us how to live the right way in the place that he is in charge of. It's very different. It's very different. Mm-hmm. It is very different. Now, so we understand also, this. Also, I was very to... bad at whirly ball. Just, just for the record, I was very bad. I did not excel. Oh, you didn't? No, but I also didn't harm anyone because. What, I what sport do you, do you, is there a sport you do excel in real quickly? So let's talk about Exodus some more, shall we? <laughs> hey, great. Um, all right. So <laughs> we, we understand sacrifices, but right here in the middle of this, we get the census tax. Um, and all the libertarians who listen are lie. there shouldn't be no taxation <laughs> here. You know <laughs> but uh it's part of the old covenant part of, not part of the new covenant right. <laughs> uh, but in the census tax it, it, it this is what we're reading here is oh man it, it is a tax but what is it doing well it's doing something very similar to what jesus says about money in the new testament which is like it's it's isn't it hard to part with money it's like this wasn't just true when Jesus showed up and said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's always been hard and it was hard for Israel. So the tax here is both uh, doxological and pedagogical. It's doxological in that it is rendered unto God for worship and praise. It's pedagogical in that it's teaching Israel, guess what? Even the things that's, that are hardest to give away belong to the Lord properly. And so the tax here is a form of worship, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is true across uh, not just their monetary system, but giving away animals. We, we think about mm-hmm. like, who cared about all these animals? They cared about these animals. <laughs> it's an mm-hmm. agrarian society. They're nomads. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you are what you, what your money is, what your animals are. I, what, I thought you were going to say you are what you eat. And then you just, oh, you pivoted right there at the end. I did. <laughs> Yeah, but the ta- the tax is a way of keeping Israel bound to the worship of Yahweh at every level, at even, not just the level of their praise, but the level of their pocketbook. Well, and it's a particular kind of tax because the amount that is required is is really sort of nominal. I mean, it would be like saying, "Hey, once a year you got to pay ten bucks." You know, it's not like. It's not like a, and, and it was, it was for no matter what level you were of income, it was not like a tithe where you give a percentage, it was a flat tax. And so the very wealthy or the very poor would have been able to afford this tax once a year. And it hearkened back though, this is the thing that's interesting to me, it hearkened back to uh, Passover because yeah. it says, you know, it's supposed to remind them that they were ransomed. It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a remembrance. Mm. And I was thinking about it before uh, we got on the podcast today, because every now and then I do actually think in advance about what we're going to talk about. Mm. And I was thinking this actually feels a little like a, a prototype of the Lord's supper in a lot of ways. Mm. 
uh, because the Lord's Supper looks back on the sacrifice of Christ. It it it's a it's a small symbolic moment um, where we all say, "I have not forgotten." Uh, how mm-hmm. I got to where I am, mm-hmm. and and I think there, there's a there's a good correlation here in the census tax because it can feel like why is he why is he nickel and diming them once a year, right? Even though the money did go to support you know the the sanctuary, it wasn't it wasn't like a huge amount, mm-hmm. and I think it's a That's remembrance. Right. I think it's an early sign of a way to remember the Passover sacrifice. Uh, whether that's the original Passover or as we see in the Lord's Supper, the the deliverance through our Passover lamb. You know what? It's interesting you say that because I was thinking something similar with the passage that comes after this with the purification laws. And mm-hmm. I've wondered, and I, I wanted to bring this here when it comes to cleaning. Now, certainly there's a consecration element to the cleaning that's happening. So right after the census tax, you have the discussion over the basin. The basin is going to be used for mm-hmm. ritual washing and for cleansing mm-hmm. with water and the cleansing of water is so that the priest Aaron and and, and those uh, that they may be able to go into the tent of meeting when they come near the altar to burn food offering before the Lord that they will be able to do so clean right that's basically Mm -hmm. what's happening here and I wondered if this was not unlike um, uh, a remembrance for them of the Red Sea and, and, the flood. Uh, and like ba- yeah. and the flood and mm-hmm. baptism mm-hmm. of this moment where there is uh, we are mm-hmm. being made clean. Uh, we are because uh, the Red Sea, yes, is crushing uh, Pharaoh, but like mm-hmm. baptism, the Red Sea is not just the crushing of the power of the devil; it's a washing mm-hmm. of Israel from the impurity mm-hmm. of of Egyptian life. In the same way that baptism is a picture of our salvation, which mm-hmm. is freedom from sin and shame and freedom from the tyranny of the devil. And, and I've wondered if the washing here that accompanied the priests wasn't a symbol, a visible symbol to Israel that they they would be able to see, um, that uh, they all had been washed, so to speak, of the unrighteousness and the evil of Egypt. I don't know yeah, if that's, it, is that crazy? Oh, it, it absolutely is, because even if you think about the order in which you would pass into the the tabernacle, you, you start at the bronze um, altar. So mm-hmm. first blood is shed for your deliverance, and then what? Then So they, they go from the Passover moment at the bronze altar to the Red Sea moment at the entrance to the Holy of Holies. And the, I mean, I'm sorry, to the holy place. Yeah. And then when you get into the holy place, what do you see? You see all of these things that were true of God's support of them in the wandering in the wilderness. You've got mm-hmm. a flame, you've got bread, you've got, um, you know, the, the ability to commune with him, but they're not into the most holy place yet because that's our final rest. And that's what we finally see, you know, in the book of Revelation. So, yeah, I think it's absolutely meant to be a picture of that timeline. Um, and the flood was very much a cleansing uh, moment. You know, the, the Red Sea was a, another cleansing moment. And, you know, there's all this stuff that's written about, I'm not prepared to talk about it from a very scholarly perspective, but maybe JT, you or Kyle know more about it than I do about how, when John the Baptist comes, Probably. you know, it starts <laughs> baptizing people, um, you know, that, oh, sure. that yeah. what he's doing is he's, he's keying in on ritual, um, mm-hmm. cleansing yes. rites yes. that were happening in the temple, but he's repurposing them. Would you say that? Or is he? Well, um, it's interesting you bring that up. I, I think I think I would say that again, I'm, I'm not qualified mm-hmm. in the way that you're just saying to talk about this. I mean, where you are, I'm just, these ideas are kind of percolating for, for me too. 
But I was just thinking about where else do we talk about this bronze altar and this is or or this anointing oil that we're about mm-hmm, to talk mm-hmm. about. This is exactly what uh, Zechariah is yes. doing when the angel Gabriel comes to him when That's he is right. on duty mm-hmm. to go into the temple. And Gabriel comes to him and says, you know, you're going to have a son. He's going to be full of the Holy Spirit. He's going to be in the line of his father, Elijah, to prepare a way for Israel. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about all the connections of, of here, Zechariah is going into this place to offer atonement mm-hmm. in, in similar ways or to cleanse to cleanse uh, the same way that Aaron would have. And, and he's he's living the biblical story yes, as he's walking right. in. He's literally li- like that's what this, this this sanctuary is meant to do. Remind you who God is, mm-hmm. the story of what He's doing for the people of Israel, and then Zechariah is given this message that and your son's going to prepare the way for the God, yes. who is who is the one who's been a part of all of this story. So I do think we're meant meant to see a lot of those connections there. And I, I wouldn't know how to talk about all of them, but I definitely think it's there. If you think about it, the entrance for that the and and obviously the average Israelite doesn't make it beyond the bronze altar, right? right. But he can see. Mm-hmm. And he can see the laver and that basically what the outer court says to the average Israelite every time he comes there, it, it reiterates, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of Egypt yeah. every single time. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at CourageForLifeBible.com. That's CourageForLifeBible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. You know, it's fascinating because I think that it is easy for us to, and we talked about this earlier, and, and we don't need a recovery. Listen, whether your church meets in a former shopping center or a historic building <laughs> hey. or has stained glass or doesn't have stained glass or whatever. like We I'm, preach from the meat section, Kyle. <laughs> That's good. I'm pretty sure it's, out. ironically, it's customer service at ours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, uh, I think that there is something that we learn about Israel's worship here, or Israel, we, we're learning something about Israel's worship, that we don't need to have one-to-one correspondence with our contemporary forms, m- mostly because the, the principles, the dictates, we might say, 
of the law here have been fulfilled in Christ. But mm-hmm. there is something that should not be rushed past in these that are that are that is more than just the thematic connections with the rest of the story of the Bible, that we're learning something here about how God views worship. Look at how embodied Israel's worship is here. It involves sights, sounds, mm-hmm. smells. Mm-hmm. Look at how communal it is. The priests are walking uh, to the uh, to the tent of meeting with bells on them, mm-hmm. so that you can hear them. There's an incense that that were an oil that is about to be offered that basically says God's like, if you compound this perfume anywhere else, guess what? You should be cut off from the people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. It's mm-hmm. like basically if you if you give this, if you offer this incense up, if you combine these spices anywhere else, you should not be allowed to be mm-hmm. a part of the covenant community. And we hear all that and it can be really shocking to us who have kind of locked in on a very one dimensional me and Jesus very narrow spiritual act of worship. This here is supposed to be reflected in our worshiping life, not in the same way. We don't have to do all of these things, but there is something here for us to learn about God is inviting our whole participation, um, both embodied and in a community into the worshiping event. Well, and here's a nod to our Catholic and former Catholic or Orthodox listeners, all 12 of you. Um, (laughs) You know, Catholicism is sometimes people will, Protestants will take a shot at it as smells and bells. Like that's actually something people will say. And it's like, yeah, smells and bells. Like they act, they, in their liturgy, they do try to replicate the immersive uh, experience that would have been temple worship. Um, even in the clothing that's so the liturgical garb that's worn by the priest, um, there are strong ties. Is this just an argument for a fog machine? Yes. Jim? Haze. It's haze. I heard, like, I heard, I found out there's, haze. I don't want to yeah. know this, but I found out there's a difference between haze and fog. Did you know this? I know it is. That's why I call it fog, just to make all those guys. <laughs> also, I, have I said this before? It smells like Aunt Annie's pretzels when they run those machines. I get so oh hungry when gosh. someone turns on the Holy Spirit machine. <laughs> I'm into those smells and bells. I get so hungry when somebody turns on the yeah. Holy Spirit. Hey, yeah. Brad, that that's your clip, bro. Right, just made well, that super just... simple for you, man. Uh, well, let's let's move to some sights and some smells. We conclude our time talking about the anointing oil and the incense. Now, mm-hmm. we, you know, all throughout last season and this season, we've been looking for thematic connections. We're we're going through the story with an effort to try to explore how what we find there ripples both before and beyond. And nowhere maybe is this as easy as anointing oil because it shows up in some anointing ceremonies are a huge part of hinge moments in the story of scripture. Where else do we see just anointing oil in the story of the Bible? I mean, Jen, you start anywhere you want to start. Uh, when kings are are selected. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, so we think about a, Saul, we think about mm-hmm. David, we think about Solomon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also, I mean, sometimes it's a medicinal anointing, right? Like uh, what you see in the parable of the um, Good Samaritan or in Psalm 23, you anoint my head with oil. Um, so, and it is interesting to me, the overlap in in usage, uh, the, you know, there's anointing oil that, san- that sanctifies and there's oil that heals. And I think the overlap is probably on purpose. Yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. We also think about Jesus. There's two, maybe more, but I can think of two immediately that certainly mm-hmm. scenes that function like anointing ceremonies. Mm-hmm. One of which is the baptism of Jesus, which does 
appear to be, even though the use of oil itself is not specifically uh, emphasized there. It mm-hmm. does appear to be an anointing ceremony. But then you also have the alabaster jar, yeah. which is the anointing of a a rare and expensive perfume that is certainly mm-hmm. a moment of uh, kind of a consecrated and worshipful doxological anointing. Mm-hmm. Um, the oil that's being offered here is to only be offered unto the Lord as, as well as the incense. And it's supposed to be, uh, it's serving a consecration um, and, and worshiping component to it that they're going to anoint the tent of meeting, the Ark of Testimony with it, the table, the utensils. Uh, you're going to consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You're going to anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve as priests. All of this consecration language is about being set apart. That's consecration. Mm-hmm. Set aside for holy use. That's what's happening with the anointing oil. Hey, we know this is a basin that you can wash your hands in. This is not a normal basin. Hey, we know this is an altar that you can offer sacrifice in. This is not like any other altar. Hey, we know this guy is a priest. He's not like any other old Israelite. These are setting aside for special uses. There's a function of the anointing oil here to say, this is important. This is holy. This is set apart. This smell is supposed to be a an olfactory mm-hmm. uh, cue Mm-hmm. to anyone who encounters it, that I am in the presence of something that has been set apart for holy use, right? Like, and you think, we, we think about like, like, why? But like, just know practically in your life, like if I walked into your house and went into your bathroom and it smelled terrible, I might be like, there's a problem here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you, there's a problem here. If I was, if I was walking up to a box of food that you are offering me, like a to-go box and I open and I, before I could see it, it smelled terrible. That is telling me something. God has created, you know, like it's a visual indicator of like something is not, or not a visual indicator. It is an embodied indicator that something is not right. So you take this here. It's, it is telling a story. I, we know this practically, but when we get here in this passage, it can feel like, well, that seems kind of weird. It's like, no, this is actually how God creates us to live in his world is is like this. It's another form of condescension. It's God dealing kindly with human beings. If you think about uh, scent memory, like we have, it's a very powerful uh, memory tool. Like mm-hmm. I remember I always associated a particular smell with my grandparents when they would come and visit yes. and um, they would, cause they would stay in my room. I would go stay in my mom's room while they were there. And then they would stay in my bedroom. We lived in a very small house. And after they would leave, there was always this scent that was in the bedroom. That was just a scent that I thought was unique to them. And it wasn't until I was an adult that I found out that my grandmother was a smoker. And she would go into the room and say, grandma's going to take a nap now. And she'd go in there and she would smoke and then she would spray air freshener. And so like this really sentimental scent that I associated with them was air freshener and cigarettes. Uh, but I still, to this day, if I smell that combination, I think of her, you know, and fondly, not like, oh, grandma was a chain smoker. Um, and so... Uh, I think in a, in a very real sense, you know, we're told in the new Testament that we are to God, the fragrance of Christ. 
And so Mm. we will smell like what we associate with, right? Scents have a way of getting into your clothing, uh, the the campfire uh, thing, where if you sit out by a campfire at night, the next day, you're going to, your, you know, your hair is still going to smell like it. Your clothes are still going to smell like it. And, and in a very real sense, I think what God is doing with the, in a very, um, I should say in a very literal physical sense, what he's doing with the incense is um, the priest is going to walk through the camp after serving in that area of the tabernacle or temple. And his clothing is going to just radiate that smell, anyone who's near him. And I think we who are uh, now a royal priesthood need to ask when we walk into the room, what is the scent memory that we carry with us in the way that we live our lives? Hmm. That's good. That is so good. I love the last part too, when it's dealing with the incense, that um, it shall be for you holy to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Whoever makes any like it to use as a perfume, perfume shall be cut off from his people. And we read that and we're like, oh, wow. Like, you know, harsh. again, harsh, but isn't the, isn't this what Adam and Eve did in the garden? They looked at what only properly belonged to God and they said, I will make it mine. This scent is going to be part of that scent memory of going, there was a time in which we tried to take what was only for God and make it our own. Mm-hmm. We wanted to be him, but we're going, this like smell is even going to be a way where we're not going to try to appropriate the praise and the glory and the beauty and the sweetness that is only the Lord's. Um, and I just love that when you begin to walk through these prescriptions and these rules for worship, not only are we discovering that they're not arbitrary, we're discovering that each one of them is built to reinforce. Think about, think about this. There were blind people in Israel mm-hmm. who still knew that they were close to the presence of the Lord mm-hmm. because they could smell it. There were deaf people in Israel who could still know they were in the presence of the Lord because they could see it and smell it. Mm -hmm. There were people who probably couldn't smell in Mm -hmm. Israel who could see it and hear it. Mm -hmm. This is, gosh, the presence of God here is radically inclusive in a way of saying, hey, you know what? Even a six-year-old, a little five-year-old Israelite running through the camp hears the jingling of the priest's garments and has to think about Mm -hmm. the priest is headed towards the tent of meeting. All that just memory layered and textured over and over and over again for generations. You know, all of these are like, hey, you should do this. Look at the language. We, we kind of skipped over it. But each one of these prescriptions you're going to find, there is some sort of language. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him mm-hmm. and to his offspring throughout their generations. Why? Because that's often how long it takes mm-hmm. to build generational memory. It's generations, generations of associating that sight, that sound, that smell, that place, that artifact, that tool, that color with something. Um, And I think that's, I think there's something really beautiful about that. I really do. I love this season. Can we just talk about Exodus for the rest of the time that we do knowing faith, like just forever? Well, I don't know if we can do that, but we are (laughs) going to talk about for the rest of the season. (laughs) (laughs) Oh okay. man! Uh, I'm just hoping we go back to Second Samuel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that that was there was definitely a Red Sea moment when we were finished with that one. Um, we were brought through the waters of death on First Too and Second Samuel. Too bad you guys hate um, the Bible. 
Too bad, huh? Um, yeah. Uh, well, on our next episode, we won't be talking about the Bible because JT and I just dislike it so much. We will be talking about Athanasius's wonderful work on Let's the go. incarnation. Uh, and we are excited to do that. Um, if you are interested in getting a copy of On the Incarnation by Athanasius, you can head over to 10 We actually have our own like thing over there that they've set up a place for you to get the books that we recommend. So if you go to 10 slash knowing faith, you're going to find... Uh, um, our little like shop there uh, and you'll be able to get a copy of Athanasius on the Incarnation along with other books we've recommended from past season. So if you want to join us in reading along with that book, you can grab a copy of that book and uh, hopefully next episode will whet your appetite to read it. It's a wonderful work. You can find Knowing Faith on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter uh, and get it wherever you get your podcast. Uh, if you want to find some really cool behind the scenes stuff, a, uh, uh, a newsletter that we have that we send out every month that will give you some early access to things. If you want to find how to get early access to episodes that are also ad free you can go to trainingthechurch.com slash support and if you do so right now you will able you'll be able to opt in to something that we're calling the knowing faith book club we're running it this spring we'll evaluate it after that but if you're interested in jumping in on that you can go to trainingthechurch.com slash support and find out how you can get access to a special podcast over there called the knowing faith book club leave us a review on apple Podcasts if you want other people to find the show and check out our sister show we're really excited about what but, um, Tiny Theologians is doing a narrative podcast aimed at teaching doctrine to kiddos and our friends over at the Family Discipleship Podcast who have wonderful guests on this season. Honestly, um, they just did an episode a couple of weeks back on uh, the journey from boys to men. And I thought it was one of the most practical discussions on this topic that I've come across in a really accessible format. So if you're raising young boys uh, and you want them to be godly men, or if you're working with boys in student or children's ministry, would encourage you to check out that episode. I thought it was fantastic. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or theology? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminary's For the Church Institute, which offers courses in Old and New Testament, Christian theology, and more, including the newly released course on missional leadership. Again, this is free theological training that you can use for your own equipping, for the equipping of those in your church, and it is available for groups or on your own. You can learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for theological training courses, free theological training courses today. Go check it out.